Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in... No my Haido Mai Kiara and welcome to Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Enika, brought to you from our home studios. Kiara Enika. Kiara Alison. Today's episode has a focus on women and women's writing. And um I've got to say I'm not going to apologize for that. So <laughs> let's let's keep going. Because um International Women's Day was celebrated earlier this week and it had the theme Break the Bias. And then we've had the twenty twenty two Women's Prize long list of sixteen titles that's been announced earlier this week as well. And um, this is a great list. We've got five debut novels in the pack and two authors from Aotearoa, New Zealand. So it's an absolute stellar lineup. I know. That was a turn up for the books, wasn't it, Alison? Yeah. Well, we're sending out huge congratulations um, to Kiwi authors Catherine Chidgey and Meg Mason, who have been longlisted for their books. Remote Sympathy by Catherine Chidgey and Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, which we, um, we've reviewed both of those and we absolutely loved them, um, when we read them last year. Yeah, we adored them, didn't we? Absolutely. Mm. So just a reminder of those books. We've got, uh, Remote Sympathy by Catherine Chidgey is set in Nazi Germany. It's an absorbing and skillfully told cautionary tale of the dangers of detachment and othering. And of course, the tragic endgame of being willfully oblivious. The story really resonates even more strongly um, with what's going on in Europe at the moment. Yeah. And Sorrow and Bliss by Sydney-based writer and journalist Meg Mason, who was born here in New Zealand, so therefore she's ours for life. <laughs> <laughs> now, that one charts the course of a relationship that starts between two awkward teenagers hiding in the family Christmas um, in London to two adults who are trying to make it work in the cul-de-sac from hell in suburban Oxford. Now, this is a romance, but it is a real one. It's modern love up against the confusing, sad aches of mental illness with all of the highs, lows, human misery that come along with that. Yeah, what great writing. Mm. And uh, we'll, we will be looking at a, a few more of the long-listed titles later in, in today's program. Hey, but first, um, I've just read and absolutely loved a New Zealand memoir called 50 Years a Feminist, and it's written by Sue Kedgley and uh, published um, at the end of 2021. Now, it's available in hard copy in our non-fiction section and also as an overdrive ebook. Now, it's a story of a, a remarkable life. Uh, Sue Kedgley, the feminist, local body politician, crusading Green MP, senior staff member at the United Nations in New York, journalist, campaigner for food safety, mother and supporter of third and fourth wave feminism. Mm. Um, what a what a scene. lady. Wow. Yep, it's and she's still going strong. She is. So this great book starts with a brief history of feminism, beginning, um, she begins with a, a really interesting explanation of the patriarchal belief systems that go back, look, thousands of years. Yeah. She talks about the two Marys, 
you're probably wondering which Mary's. <laughs> not, not that Mary, but Mary Astell and Mary Wollstonecraft in the 1700s who, who asked things like, if men are born free, why are women born slaves? Mm. Good question. Now, there's a bit at the beginning of her own very interesting family history. And then we skip through to about 1970, when, as a young woman, Sue discovered the book that would change her life. And this was the one called Sisterhood is Powerful, an anthology of writings from the women's liberation movement. And it was edited by Robin Morgan. I read that. No, it's it's one that I've had a brief look at, um, but I probably need to look at it, it again with a, our lens of, of 2022. Mm. You know, we all have that book that changes your life. That's um, so true. That could be one for another podcast. Let's put that in the in the ideas folder. Uh, yes, put it, put it in our minutes for today. <laughs> so... As a result of, of this um, epiphany caused by Sisterhood is Powerful, Sue established a women's liberation group at Auckland University. And in 1971, she and the group famously carried a coffin into Albert Park um, to take a stand for women's rights. And this piece of performance protest was one that, of many that Sue organised. And she ruffled the feathers of the patriarchy o- along the way. <laughs> and these women were called bloody bra-burning women's libbers and they were called much worse by mm. people who who didn't really understand what women's lib, lib or women's liberation meant for the entire community. Mm. So Sue takes us through the 70s through to the 2020s with stories of activism, fighting for social justice, um, with battles won, battles lost, and her work is seemingly never done. She describes encounters with fascinating people and romantic relationships with some very interesting and famous men. Ooh. It's great if you want some goss about well-known people in, in television and politics from the, the past four or five decades. Nice. This memoir, it's um, a significant achievement and a very welcome addition to feminist literature. I think it should be read by anyone with an interest in in seriously addressing the wrongs and inequalities which hold our society back. It's a great social history. And look, I think it should be part of every school library. Um, And, you know, it should become a standard reference for anyone involved in any sort of social justice endeavour. It's got great references and indexes, and an index, I mean, which we like, of course. Yeah, we do. So, um, and of course, this makes it a good research tool for for scholars, um, particularly into the future. But look, it isn't dry scholarly work at all. Um, It's written with a very clear focus and a light touch so that it will have very broad appeal. Mm -hmm. Look, I really enjoyed the book. Um, and I, I learned a lot about our recent history. There were, you know, there were incidents I'd heard of, but I, I wasn't too sure of the details, like the infamous appearance on International Women's Day in 1972, which is, can you believe it, 50 years ago, oh, when um, uh, Jermaine Greer addressed a group of 5,000 students at Auckland University and filled her speech with obscenities like the word 
bullshit, which I'm, I'm allowed to say now, but that was deemed an indecent word under the Police Offences Act at the time. And she was spurred on by the fact that Tim Shadbolt had recently been arrested for saying bullshit in public. Mm. So um, Jermaine was... I know, summoned court, and she was fined $40 for saying the F word in public. So then, um, as a result, the Sue and hundreds of others surrounded the, the magistrate's court and chanted these offending words loudly. Uh, you know, looking back, it seems so innocent, but this was serious and shocking stuff in those restrained days. Um, we've come a long way. But look, this is a great read and a, a must read for anyone that's interested in the progress of our society over the last 50 years. I'm just imagining what we could do if we had $40 for every time somebody said the F word now, Alison. Imagine that pile of coin. We'd be rich women. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my first book for today um, is The Great... uh, Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, um, published last year in 2021, and I've only just got my hands on it in the last month um, because it has been so popular and for very, very good reason. Now, it's available in our fiction collection, and it's also available on Overdrive as an e-book and e-audio book. Now, this one is on lists, um, and we have talked about it in previous episodes when I was desperately waiting for it. It is on the um, Man Booker, um, it was on the Man Booker long list and it is on the uh, long list for the Women's Prize as well. So this is a historical novel um, primarily with a, um, a sort of paralleled contemporary story as well, but I would say mostly historical. It's a sweeping epic. It spans the 20th century from the turn of the 20th century right up to our present day, and it follows the extraordinary life, mysterious disappearance and hidden secrets of the unforgettable aviatrix Marianne Graves, who by the time you get to the end of the book, you will believe is real. She is absolutely phenomenal character. Now, Marianne's adventures start very early when she and her twin brother, Jamie, are saved from a shipwreck. Uh, Now, this leaves them to be brought up by their kind but quite troubled uncle in a cabin in rural Montana. So she grows up in the woods. She's a bareback rider, cuts her hair short. You've got the picture, Alison. And she's Mm -hmm. an avid reader of um, adventure stories and um, and books about far-off lands. Now, this is a real legacy inherited from her sea captain father who never really um, put down roots. But her eyes are actually firmly on the skies by the time she's she's, um, a teenager. Now, a local... um, bootlegger she's a she's poor so she um she is offered the chance to to um get flying lessons and a plane to use so this is her dream come true really um but this wealthy young bootlegger who is is very attractive and uh, marion's quite compelled to towards him but his offer comes with these conditions that lead to this very complex and quite controlling relationship with a lot of power dynamics going on um as you can imagine with the the yeah, yeah what's going on there. So and there's always strings attached. Definitely. And the strings yeah. here are, are they're tight. They're very tight. Um, and it seems like Marianne may be grounded for good after finally achieving her goal of, of learning to fly. But she is resourceful and restless. She is a born wanderer and she's really driven by her gut and her heart. So she, if something is not going right, she will change. She will turn the page and change the, the story. Um, 
So as we follow her through the story, we're walking, riding and flying alongside her as she really right through her life, resets her personal compass again and again. She moves from Montana to Alaska, from New York to go and sign on as a World War II supply pilot in England. And eventually, her lifelong goal is to circumnavigate the globe, flying over both poles, which comes um, near the end of the novel with her daring attempt at this. Now, along the way, she's building strong connections with friends and lovers. She revisits old relationships and sort of reshapes them to fit new needs and wants. Um, She makes, she's always making things anew. We also get to follow her brother, Jamie. He's, uh, his sort of life and loves um, on his path to becoming a successful artist. Now, the second story that runs in parallel with Marianne's is set in the present day. We meet former teen star Hadley as she's dealing with the fallout of a major sex scandal. Now, it's very reminiscent of um, one that you may remember from a few years ago between the Twilight stars, Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson. So it's it's cheating on your co-star slash um, boyfriend. Yeah, real life boyfriend. Scandal. Yeah. Scandal. So the fans turn against her in a big way. Now, she's offered the chance of rising or bringing a career up from the ashes by playing Marion in a biopic. And in the course of her research for the role, she finds herself increasingly fascinated by Marianne's life. She has a logbook. There's a logbook that was found of um, before Marianne dis- or after Marianne disappeared. And there's lots of other different versions of Marianne's story that are floating around the place. Now, Handley's part of the story is the contemporary part. It's it's leaner. It's about probably about a quarter of the book um, interspersed with the rest of the story. It's quite satirical. It's a bit less absorbing, um, but I think it adds it does add to the story. Both of the characters experience this judgment of the world, but also the joy that comes from following their instincts and ambitions, despite everyone's attempts to pull them down. This is a brilliant story. You will be absolutely hooked from when you pick it up to when you reluctantly close it. It's a multi-layered story of bravery under fire. The strength that people can gain from burning down your own house and following your desires and your ambitions where they lead. You know, there's lots of leaps into the unknown in this and it's very difficult when the world wants you to stick to the scheduled flight path. It's also got a lot to say about the shifting sands between um, truth and um, and stories. So, you know, this impossible task of trying to capture a life that's been lived to the absolute max, even from multiple perspectives um, and with multiple uh, angles on it. Hadley notes in the book that the truth about Marianne seemed too big, too amorphous for me to gather. She had spread out like debris from a wreck. And in Marianne's words, she says... I wish to measure my life against the dimensions of the planet using lines of latitude, measuring the difference between where they're going and where they're meant to go. That's where life is, that wedge of discrepancy. The writing is just beautiful in this book. It's very sensory experience to read it, rich descriptions, um, lots of beautiful metaphor. Yeah, for, you know, this is, it's a dream. Yeah, loved it, loved it, loved it. Wow, this, um, I can't wait to read this. I'm, I'm still in, in the queue for it. Um, I love that, the, the concept of latitude and, and long, longitude. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, the uh, book that I'm going to talk about next, this 
I don't think it's a match for the one you've just described, but um, it's a bit of a tire fire, though. Um, so I will will tell you about it. But um, yeah, um, uh, readers could could perhaps make their own um, <laughs> decisions about it. So this one's a, a really topical read uh, about a, a very hot button issue that's facing our communities, and it's called the herd, uh, written by Emily Edwards, and it's just released. So it's 2022. Um, it's available in hard copy in our fiction section. Only just released, so we don't have an overdrive ebook version yet, but I'm sure it won't be far away. So the, the title of this book, The Herd, gives us an, a clue about its content. And of course, herd, um, in this case, refers to the concept of herd immunity, which is um, a resistance to the spread of an infectious disease um, based on pre-existing immunity of a high proportion of individuals, either due to vaccination or previous infection. So in this book, um, best friends become arch enemies um, in a courtroom battle over childhood vaccines. Mm. One cohort believe wholeheartedly in the benefits of vaccines and the other side think that the risks of mass vaccination aren't worth, aren't worth it. And um, both sides have done their research on the internet, but really all they've done is confirm their own theories online. Um, some of this will be sounding familiar, I'm sure. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah. So we start with our best friends, Elizabeth and Bry. They're polar opposites in many ways, um, but their unexpected friendship has always worked. They met, they'd met earlier in their lives as young women in London back in their unmarried kind of partying days you'll know all about this <laughs> Inika, um, the London days and now they both live in a peaceful fairly affluent satellite town just a train ride from the centre of London you know they're the kind of women that you see around the, the fairly leafy suburbs well educated yummy mummy mummies into yoga mindfulness and recycling they're the best of friends. They're godmothers to each other's daughters because they trust that the safety of their children is, is both of their top priorities. Mm. Little do they know that they actually differ radically over one very important issue. And um, when Bri, who's always afraid of being judged, tells what's supposed to be a harmless white lie before a child's birthday party, the consequences are more catastrophic than either of them could have ever imagined because it turns out that their tranquil town has a relatively low vaccination rate. It's not something that anyone had ever thought of. And a measles epidemic is about to take hold. And this epidemic causes carnage. So the author suggests that, you know, if we're to live in a community, then surely we've got a duty not to cause each other harm. But she also asks the question, when do we judge how someone else chooses to raise their child? Mm -hmm. Big questions and big drama. So if you're a fan of Leanne Moriarty or Jodie Pico, I can guarantee you'll love this book. It's a real page turner and it's about a highly political or politicised current issue. It's perfect for a book club to discuss. Now, I had a little bit of a criticism of, of the book, and that's that the dramatic 
crescendo um, to me was a little bit disappointing. Some of the critics called it clunky, but I sort of thought it was a bit thin. I felt mm. that the drama could have been fleshed out a bit. But I can totally see this one being made into a TV series. I can see Netflix will want to get its hands oh, on it. Oh, they will. Yeah, this is reminding me of The Slap by um, Christos Chalkas oh, as well. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Okay, I think <laughs> I'm going to get the cue for that one. That's, yeah, I could do a bit of that. <laughs> yeah. My next book is um, on the long list as well um, for Wins Prize. And this is The Island of Missing Trees by um, by Elif Shafak. Um, now, Elif Shafak is a uh, highly acclaimed Turkish author. She's written 19 books um, to date. Um, I, I actually read this one in mid-January. I lost my notes really quickly. But um, <laughs> I tell you what, it stayed in with me So uh, because it's so beautifully written. So I'll tell you a bit about it. Now, it's set in Cyprus in the 1970s and then London in the present day. And the story follows Costas and Daphne's love story from their teenage years growing up in the 70s to today. Now, Costas is Greek and Christian and Daphne is um, Turkish and Muslim. Both are Cypriots, but political and religious division in their um, country means they must meet in secret and only at night. So there's a tavern in the um, outskirts of town and this is where they they meet up in the evenings. They have, this tavern is quite um, evocative actually, it has this fig tree growing in the centre of the building and this fig tree will be um, pivotal in the book. Now civil war and violence breaks out and this is all based on historical fact and Cyprus is still um, divided by the effects of this war from the 70s. And as we watch it play out, it threatens to tear the couple and their homeland apart. Now, in contemporary London, we have Ada, who's Costas and Daphne's teenage daughter. Now, she was born and bred in the UK, and she's struggling to establish her identity um, as she goes through her adolescent years. And she's really frustrated at not really knowing how and where she really fits. Now, the history behind her parents' relationship and her, you know, their, their shared heritage has actually been hidden from her by her parents. They wanted to protect her from sort of inherited trauma and the the pain of the past, really. But it means that she's got this quite um, conflicted and damaged relationship with her own heritage. Now, Ada's mother has passed when we meet um, the family. Um, so she's in grieving and she's got all these unanswered questions as well. Now, Daphne's sister, Miriam, um, comes from Cyprus um, to London. And this is the first time that she has visited the family um, since um, they left Cyprus. And it's the first time she's met Ada as well. So a door to the past and to her family's history gets opened by her aunt visiting. And Ada really has to decide whether she wants to step through and find more. Now, as I said, this fig tree is pivotal. So there's a smuggled cutting of the tree from the taverna um, that is transplanted into the garden in London. And in a wonderfully inventive twist, this tree in the garden in London gets to narrate its own story. It talks of its relation, long history with this particular family and of its homeland in Cyprus, drawing on this beautiful, um, long collective pool of memory spanning back generations of trees. Um, really made me feel of this. The tree's papa was just coming through into the book and it kind of puts um, the, the human dramas into perspective with this constant 
you know, churn of life, death and renewal that's happening in nature all the time. Now, I absolutely loved this edition and I think it kicks off the book as well from what I recall. Um, the tree itself is a war refugee and it's a child with roots in two lands. Um, there's this lovely scene where Costas, who's a a botanist buries the tree in the garden for winter because it's a transplant from a warmer place and this is apparently some way of protecting it from from the cold climate um, which was a beautiful um, scene and apparently this scene actually sparked um, Shafak's decision to write the book it's quite it was quite a charged subject for her as a Turkish woman um, yeah, so this this book um, really reminded me of two other books um, about refugees and civil war um, that I've read in the last few years. So there's Colin McCann's novel, A Paragon, which is about grieving fathers um, from either side of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict who come together to spread a message of peace. And also, um, Say Nothing, a true story of murder and memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden O'Keefe, which is a non-fiction book which looks at the troubles in Belfast and the people whose uh, loved ones were disappeared and are still looking for answers about their loved ones. Wow, that it sounds such a powerful book, and I love it's that beautiful. metaphor of, of the tree. Well, look, um, we've got time just to mention um, another book that, that's made the, the Women's Prize long list, and this is Careless by Kirsty Capes. Um, it's a, a powerful coming-of-age novel that's set in Britain in the 1990s, and it's Kirsty Capes' um, debut novel, um, and it's destined to be a hit. Really pleased to see this title on the Women's Prize long list. Now, it's the story of a, of a young woman called Bess who's in foster care um, in the system in the UK. Now, she's 15 when we meet her, and she's been in the care of the same family since she was four years old. And to the authorities, this placement is a complete success. Mm. Look, she's got a roof over her head, food on the table, and foster parents who love her. I mean... That's conditional love, but hey, that's good enough, hey. So when we meet Bess, she's 15 and she's just discovered that she's pregnant to a 19-year-old guy called Boy. She doesn't even actually know his real name. Boy is a rebellious character. He's a petty thief. Um, he actually met Bess when he stole her bike. Oh. He's... Um, what a good start to what a relationship. Yeah. yeah. He's essentially got a good heart, but he's not the kind of guy that you, your mum would want you to be involved with, let alone to be the father of your child. Uh, Bess has a, a fraught relationship with her foster mum, Lisa. Um, she's trying to decide, does she keep the baby or does she have a termination and then pursue her dreams of becoming a filmmaker? And all of this while trying to be a normal teenager. Fortunately, now, Bess has a, a best friend from school called Eshal, and um, Eshal's parents have immigrated from Bangladesh, and they, um, Eshal's family have their own problems navigating a very racist society. But um, uh, Eshal's mum, Mrs Bandari, uh, wraps Bess in love, and there's a real lesson here about families of choice. Mm-hmm. Bess's voice clearly tells the story of the care experience. She says, my two life choices are either to do really, really well at school so I can get out of town as quickly as possible or become one of the locals in the crossroads who drink so much that all their teeth have fallen out. I could go either way right now. 
She talks about the, the limits placed on foster families um, where we don't really talk about love. We just don't. Um, it's against the rules. Um, and those rules that say the foster carers can't hug you or take you for a haircut without permission. It's just, it's just awful. Um, so as well as the, you know, the struggles over bodily autonomy that all women face, she's got the added layer of control on her body that the foster care system places on her. Very shocking and, and interesting. It, um, look, it really offers profound insight into the impact of this conditional love on a child who is looked after by the system. Mm. Um, and it's a very transactional uh, relationship that the, the looked after child has with the system. Mm. This is a book that stole my heart. Um, I just loved the relationship between Bess and Ishal. Um, it had a bit of a Dairy Girls vibe going on. Um, kind of Dairy Girls without the nuns, though. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Kirsty Capes, the author, grew up in the care system and she's an advocate for, for better representation representation of of care experience people in the media um she's actually mentored um and academically supervised by bernadine evaristo the mm. booker prize winner from 2019 for girl woman other so and um kirsty capes has recently completed a phd in literature looking at the female-centric care narratives in contemporary fiction so a great book well look um We've run out of time, so all I can say now is happy reading. Um, have a look at these books, take care, and be kind to yourselves. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash 104.6.